This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning and welcome to the Late July Eye on the Market podcast. Uh, we've decided to change formats a little bit. Right now, we're sending out a note each week that cover the COVID topics of the week. Um, this week, we talked about a few issues, including the infection symptom decline, some interesting information about Liz Cheney, Hong Kong's second wave, uh, the phase one Oxford, Oxford vaccine antibody response, uh, U.S. spending and hospitalization trends, Latin America, and, and, and some information on government march-in rights. Just going to go through a few of these things very quickly. Uh, we've, we're starting to look at some new data from Carnegie Mellon uh, on doctor visits with COVID-like symptoms. And when you look at the hotspot states across the entire southern part of the United States, uh, those doctor visits with COVID-like symptoms have, have declined sharply, uh, almost in half from about um, 11% to five and a half percent of all doctor visits and in those states they do a reasonably good job of leading future infections so it suggests that the plateauing of infections that we're seeing right now may continue to decline um, i mentioned liz cheney because at a recent uh, party conference some gop representatives actually called on her to resign or be removed as the house republican conference chair simply for supporting um, Anthony Fauci in public. Now, Liz Cheney is someone who votes with Trump positions 97% of the time, but all she had to do was support Anthony Fauci in public and ended up being called on to resign or be forcibly removed. Um, I've done a ton of research over the last few months on how to explain the level of infections in counties, cities, states, and countries. Uh, and I haven't been able to come up with any model that explains the gap between U.S. infections, which are still running about 200 uh, per million people, um, uh, and, and, and the infection rate in Australia, France, Canada, U.K., Germany, you know, the rest of the developed world, which are 80 to 90 percent lower. Um, there is no mobility data. There's no demographic data. There's no obesity data. There's no anything data that explains the massive gap in between the U.S. infection rates and the infection rates in the rest of the developed and much of the developing world. And so uh, these massive unexplainable residuals, uh, I'm tempted to think that they're also explained by the implications and policy consequences of a country that calls on people to resign for supporting Anthony Fauci in public. So that's why I mentioned Liz Cheney this week. Um, there's a new chart that we are looking at, which is, um, and we got this from J.P. Morgan's technical strategy group. The idea is to look at what percentage of the U.S. population lives in a place with positive virus trajectories. Uh, there's three components to it. Um, one is as what's going on with case growth on a high-frequency basis. Uh, is the testing rate below 10% and has the infection rate fallen six, at least 40% from its peak level? Um, in early June, this chart peaked at 50%, meaning around half the country lived in a place with positive virus trajectories. That number is down at around 25%. 
So there are some good leading indicators in terms of these doctor visits, but as things stand right now, only a quarter of the United States population lives in places with positive virus trajectories based on this particular approach. Now, I thought it was interesting. A lot of our colleagues in Hong Kong are contacting me to tell me that Hong Kong is experiencing what they call a second or third wave of infection. Um, they're not, Hong Kong is not reimposing a complete lockdown per se. The government announced mobility restrictions, that schools are not going to reopen as planned in August, uh, no more in-person dining, everything's takeout, and that gatherings are limited to four people, um, 20 for weddings, which would have been fine with me. Um, and also mandatory face masks with $5,000 fines for people that don't comply. Think about how tight these restrictions are. Uh, and Hong Kong, again, is a country whose infection rate, even after this little mini second wave, is, is only 10% of what's going on uh, right now in the U.S. Um, the, another topic we talked about this week was the phase one uh, vaccine trial results. You need to be careful here. Phase one results are primarily focused on the question of safety. In other words, did, the, did anybody get very sick from receiving this new vaccine? But, but um, scientists also are going to measure the immunogenicity results, which is a fancy way of saying, was there any antibody response at all? And it's important if there is, because if there isn't any kind of antibody response, you wouldn't proceed to the expense and complexity of phase two. Uh, and if, but if there is an antibody response, you can move forward. And so what we show here is that um, for the Os Oxford AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, um, the antibody response levels after a second booster shot 28 days after the first vaccine um, helped generate antibody response levels that were more or less similar to those seen in convalescent plasma samples. Although, as you can see from the distribution in the chart we have, the distribution of, of those samples and the antibody responses in the vaccinated individuals are very wide. And so um, the there's a lot of real-life complexity to the immune system, uh, which makes the question of required herd immunity complicated when you have such wide distributions. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, we <clears throat> also took a look this week at the spending data. So the spending data stalled in terms of year-on-year -year improvements. So the, one of the things we've been measuring is debit and credit card spending versus last year, it, and, and, um, in, and particularly in person debit and credit card spending. It bottomed at about 50% of 2019 levels in April. And as of mid-June, it was only down 20%. Uh, but then it stopped improving and has been more or less plateauing at minus 20%. And that plateau exactly coincided with when the hospitalization levels in the United States started to rise. And I think hospitalization is in some ways a better measure of virus severity than infections per se. So if we are, <clears throat> pardon me, on the cusp of a decline in hospitalizations as predicted by some of those doctor visit data, we would expect the in-person credit and debit card spending data to start improving again. But um, right now, I think the best way to understand the spending plateau <clears throat> is based on what's happening in the virus. Um, we have some additional information showing the context around the spike in mortality. Um, the mortality numbers have picked up again 
on a per person basis, they're still well below what happened in New York and New Jersey earlier in the spring. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the best <coughs> benchmark given how unprepared the country was at the time. One last comment this week and that I thought was interesting to cover, which is that there's a couple of circumstances under which the federal government can intervene uh, alongside private sector patents for vaccines, antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, or any other medications. And the first one is if private sector patents were produced with federal funds helping, uh, the government has the right to essentially produce those medications in government labs as well and sell them or distribute them how it sees fit. Uh, and, and in these cases, when federal funds were used, the government can also require licensing to third parties. Uh, NYU's got a technology law and policy clinic, and they believe this would, would apply to the uh, drug remdesivir. Um, and so it, it'll be interesting to see whether or not the federal government ex exercises such rights. Um, it doesn't in invalidate the private sector patent. It basically just allows the federal government to produce the drug as well. Um, and separately, there's a, a, another clause under which the federal government, via the Health and Human Services Department, can take control of any industry-owned patents, manufacturing and distribution, even if there was no federal funds involved, as long as just compensation is paid. So in other words, it doesn't allow anybody else to invalidate the patent, but it allows the federal government to invalidate the patent, and then uh, there would have to be a claim for just compensation. Uh, during the anthrax scare in 2001, the federal government used the threat of this clause to push the price of generic Cipro to blow a dollar a tablet. And there were also some calls in 2018 for the government to use this to break Gilead's patent for expensive hep C drugs. So it will be interesting to see, based on my read, the drug remdesivir is mildly beneficial in terms of reducing the hospital stay of, uh, of severely ill patients. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see whether for remdesivir or dexamethasone or for any of the other drugs in the pipeline, if the federal government decides to either push the price down and or increase the volume of distribution by exercising any of these rights. So that's it for this week. Um, thanks for listening and uh, see you at the next webcast. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTL.